CEU Medieval Radio, Past Perfect, the talk show about medieval and early modern culture. Welcome to Past Perfect, the radio show of CEU Medieval Radio with today's Grand Inquisitor, David Rockwell. We're fortunate to have as our guest today Pietro del Corno, a young career scholar in the field of late medieval and early modern studies who focuses most recently on sermon studies. Pietro completed his PhD in medieval history at Radboud University in Nijmegen, in the Netherlands in 2016. He won there a very prestigious Rubicon Fellowship from the Netherlands Organization for Scientific Research, which allowed him to spend three years at the University of Leeds. After spending some time in Witwatersrand, the University of Witwatersrand uh, in Johannesburg, South Africa, uh, we're now fortunate here at CEU to have him as a junior core fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies, where he's working on a fascinating project relating to his continuing work on sermon studies in the late medieval and early modern periods. Uh, thank you, Pietro, for joining us today. Thank you for this nice welcome. Well, I can see from your CV that your your interest in liturgy, religious practice in the, in the early modern Renaissance and, and medieval periods are, are very far-ranging. They cover preaching, religious theater, iconography, social history, education, and the like. Can you tell us, please, how did you get started uh, in this field? What interested you? Okay, I can say that uh, the things that... Uh kept together these different interests at the beginning was the idea to I was interested in seeing how the Bible was used in medieval society. It started with an idea that is very well known that in uh, medieval Europe the Bible was at the center of the culture of the time but while we know quite well how it was studied at the university or how it was used for the liturgy, we still have to know more about how the Bible reached common people, let's say, or the people living in the town, the lay people. And I started to, to do research in that. And there I started with the idea, okay, I focus on preaching mainly. And soon I realized it was uh, usable to have, a, let's say, multimedia approach. So thinking that the same person that go to hear preaching was looking at the painting and was also in some town participating either as an actor or as a spectator to religious theater. That is uh, something that in the last centuries of the Middle Ages start to develop. So that the same person could receive messages about the Bible from different sides. But then my point was also to see what was used the Bible for. So you can use the Bible to create a discourse. So what kind of discourse? How flexible can be the Bible to attach the content that you decided are important for the people? And so I start in that direction. And then somehow I continue with different accent in the different projects I did to move in this area of some, somehow religious communication in the late Middle Ages. Can we focus on, on some practical bare mechanics of religious communication? I mean, if I understand your period properly, um, we're dealing with a, a Bible at the time which is exclusively published in the Latin language and a population of people who, by and large, did not understand Latin at all. How is this difference bridged? Yes, um, the majority of the sources that we have are in Latin, although I work also with uh, vernacular mm -hmm. texts because, for instance, uh, when we speak of religious theater, there the majority of the texts that we are are in vernacular. I worked with texts from Italy or from the different parts of Germany, but I'm well aware also there are very nice texts also in present-day United Kingdom and in France, so it's quite interesting. That is usually in vernacular. 
Um, but uh, what is even more than how it's mediated, uh, that is, of course, we have different actors involved in the in communication, like today. So who were the main actors? And up to a certain period, we can say that the main actors were mainly the clergy. And within the clergy, especially in Western Europe, we speak mainly about Western and Central Europe, also Scandinavia, but I'm less expert about that. There you have really a predominant role from the 30th century onwards of the mendicant orders. That means mainly Franciscan, Dominicans, this kind of friars. And so they acted as mediator, you know, and there is, a, someone said they were really able to mediate between the language, the professional language of theology in the university and the everyday language that was spoken by the people in the towns, in the cities. And there, of course, this mediation was not only a cultural mediation, but also linguistic mediation. So they were working with texts that were mainly in Latin, that more or less played the role of English today as a sort of uh, lingua franca or shared background. But then were able also to adapt both the content and the language to the people. And there is a bit uh, an issue when we speak about communication, because what we have as sources are either the texts that serve for that communication or information of what happened in a special events like chronicles or someone writing to a letter and commenting about, I don't know, oh, that preacher did these strange things. But the proper events of communication being an event that is a performance and an oral event is somehow difficult to grasp. And that is one of the challenges, but also of the fascinating things of studying communication in a distant past. That is, you have to find a way to arrive to understand how communication was. But I was saying mainly the role of the clergy, but then in the last part of the Middle Ages, really there is this growing involvement of lay people, so people that were neither priests, nuns, or friars, they, there was an increasing desire to be involved in understanding better the content of the Bible or have access to religiosity, of course, with different degree in different parts of Europe, but a growing literacy, so a growing number of people that was willing and interested to read, to take notes, to discuss these topics. But we have also to remember that the vast majority remaining people that were active on the orality level. So they were listening and speaking, repeating, and that is where also the level of preaching was involving then, while instead their level of writing or thought was growing involved only a minority that was growing, but remained a minority till the modern era. Um, to the extent that this was a movement that was led by the mendicant orders, are we to are to to interpret from that that this was exclusively an urban phenomenon, or uh, were there also efforts, you know, sort of spread across the countryside? On that, I guess there are a double level of reply. One thing is that we are for sure that was a urban phenomenon, and we have sources about that, so we can study quite well, let's say. While for the countryside, often we have very few sources still. But, for instance, we know from some of the most famous preachers, the star of the pulpit of the late Middle Ages, like Vincent Ferrer, Bernardino da Siena, John of Capistrand, that when they were traveling from one city to the other, they stopped at very small towns, very small villages, or at uh, single town, market towns, and they preach also there. So that kind of preaching was reaching also that region. But it's very 
difficult to have information about, about the everyday practice in the countryside for, let's say, the 13th, 14th and beginning of the 15th century. So it's a matter also of the sources that we have on one side. On the other side, we have not to forget that there was in the countryside in many parts of Europe a very important role and presence of the monastic orders. And they played a role also in preaching, both in the monastery and around. So uh, on that side, I'm a bit less expert. I focus mainly on the uh, urban environment, but I know from colleagues working more, uh, for instance, on Poland or on uh, Hungary as well, that uh, there are information about uh, this uh, preaching uh, or communication also in the countryside. Thanks. I noticed that in your last response, you know, sort of the word sources came up several different times. Yeah. Can you talk to us a little about what is the nature of your sources and where do you find them? Yeah, the nature of my sources can be said like that. Usually they are quite boring sources at the first look. <laughs> it's not any... something a historian <laughs> yeah. usually says about his sources, Pietro. <laughs> no, okay, but, but, but they can, are quite interesting when you squeeze them and the kind of information they can provide. But basically, about preaching, I would say that we have, uh, say, four types of sources, uh, just to be very brief. We have sermons, of course, and these are of two types. Sermons written by preachers, so to prepare their preaching or to say I'm an expert preacher, these are my models for others. Then you have sermons that can be uh, written by someone in the audience that say, oh, I like this preaching, I like this sermon, it can be useful for me, or because I'm a preacher myself, or because I'm a lay person really interested in religion. So I start to take notes and that is different because it's notes taken, so they can be very selective to say, oh, these were the pieces that were important or new or the other, or just put notes to say, and then he spoke about that as usual. So something perhaps there was half an hour, but was the standard. Sort of like a medieval blogger with a take on the news. Yes. Taking out the parts that they, yeah. that they find most interesting. Yeah. Or to say you go to a party and you write in your diary only the things that were really important. And that can be said that third level, there are chronicles. So someone that is doing the chronicle of a town and of course, tends to record important events. So if something happened during public preaching or a disaster, like, I don't know, there was an accident, so a bridge collapsed, someone died, I record that. Or the preacher was great, so I mentioned that. And finally, the most difficult of all are is iconography. We have uh, paintings or illuminations about preachers. And of course, also those images can be a source to, to understand certain elements of how preaching was done in the public space or in his church, which was the composition of the audience. So these are more or less the sources. Okay. And why is it important to study this angle? What is it that these texts can tell us that has not been seen before in scholarship? Yeah, on that, if I may, I can say something of my current project that is uh, what is now interesting for me and is about uh, uh, Lenten sermon collections. That is, okay, uh, the Lenten period is the period before Easter, and there was a sort of invention in the late Middle Ages that was the idea, oh, this is a period where we can preach every day, not only on Sunday or in the main feast. So they started in the late 30th century with this idea in Italy, probably San Dominican friars, 
And then this became successful to the point that in the 50th century, that was a, a social practice, I would say. So people were used that in the main churches or in the towns, you would have a good preacher that preached for every day, so 50 days in a row, more or less. And therefore, me, it's quite interesting to what I'm studying now is how this cycle of sermon were constructed. How does they work with the idea that they were strategic to provide an overarching idea of society and what does it mean to be a Christian? Because basically, if a preacher had to preach 50 days in a row, he had to have a good plan. You cannot improvise. First, because you need to decide where to start, where to pass, where to end up. Then you need to have a good strategy to convince the people to come every day. Because it's they, like a sportsman. You can't peak too early. Yeah, or, or like a, a TV series. Mm -hmm. no, you need to say, okay, this is the first episode. There are other 49. I have to convince the people to watch one after the other. Or at least to watch the main episode. You can skip some episodes without getting lost. And the final point is that that period of preaching, intensified period, that was a sort of... A, public education for the common people, was then connected with key um, religious rites, so the confession of sin that, that, that involved a revision of your personal life, the participation in the communion, that means, oh, I'm part of a, of a Christian community, I'm part of the Christian society, or if I'm not part, that is visible at that point. And also uh, the commemoration of the Passion of Christ that in the uh, last part of the Middle Ages became really, really something that attracted a lot of attention from the people. So also from an emotional point of view. So, And this is also visible if some of you have in mind uh, uh, the representation of the Passion in the, in the in visual art of the time is really, really changed from the 30th century onward. It's really pushing to the forefront the, the, the suffering the of suffering. Christ yes. and the Virgin Mary. So that is also visible in the texts. So this is my project. And why it's important, you were asking, because up to now it's only the project, because through that we can have an access to what was the shared religious language of the people especially of those that were not reading. And so if we study which were the patterns of this type of discourses, we can arrive not only to some very selected part of the population that left traces in written, but also we can project an idea of what was a mass media of the time. So the religious discourse has been, uh, preaching has been uh, uh, named as a mass media of the Middle Ages because, of course, was through a lot of preachers was able to reach a lot of people every year with discourses that, of course, had a, a variety, but also at some point that was repeated and then the people somehow learned it by art and went to construct a sort of uh, cultural landscape, of course, with different degree because there were different social background in the audience, so the reception was not always the same. In the audience of many people here, we speak usually of hundreds of people and in certain cases of great preacher, thousands of people. Of course, it's different the, the way people receive the message, but already to arrive to understand better how the message was constructed allow us to have a better understanding of the society of the time and how ideas circulate into that. 
And have you um, discovered or identified uh, differences between different populations or different orders? For example, you know, sort of are there different emphases in the German-speaking lands as opposed to the Italian-speaking lands? Or, you know, were there differences in emphasis between, for example, the Dominicans on the one hand and the Franciscans on the other? Have you been able to, you know, sort of pick apart any subtle differences that might shed light into sort of different social differences? Uh, yes, although that would be one of the outcome of mm -hmm. my project that uh, I hope in a couple of years to have mm -hmm. more answer about that. But uh, there were differences in style somehow. We see that in the 50th century, it developed a more dramatic style of preaching. That means that, for instance, uh, we found more preachers that uh, create a sort of uh, one-man show, but presented different uh, figures, speaking dialogues, uh, amplifying the, the, the biblical story if they were presenting. A, for instance, I studied a couple of parables in my projects. For instance, in the case of the prodigal son, they invented new characters. They developed the short dialogue that are present in the text in the gospel to much more lengthy dialogues. So it was a more theatrical presentation of uh, preaching. So this is a difference in the communicating strategy. Then there were also some differences between religious orders, but less prominent than what usually is expected. Mm -hmm. So when you preach to the people, I would say that the difference between a Franciscan and a Dominican is not so big, unless you touch some very specificity of, the, of each religious order. So in the 50th century, there was a big debate about the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, that there was a divide, so the Dominican would say no, the Franciscan yes. So if you deal with that topic, you see the big difference. But if you discuss about, I don't know, social issues like uh, usury or the seven deadly vices or how to prepare for the confession, there the difference is not very visible and is visible instead how in the texts you see that they were borrowing from each other, that in the library of a Franciscan convent you find also all the Dominican authors and vice versa. So there was really a sharing. And that is also one of the elements that is quite fascinating to see the circulation of these texts through people that were traveling a lot, the Mendican authors especially. So that there was this sort of international community with their strong point. So certain cities served as a hub in certain period to exchange taxes or to produce novelties. And the last point about the, your question, I see the, the 50th century in particular as a time of great experimentation. That is also what is for me attractive. So it's a century that uh, the experimentation in communication, experimentation in religious communication. So you find new way to create this sermon collection with inventiveness, with new solution, you see the development of the religious theater much more than in previous centuries, and also the invention of printing offer new opportunities, and the religious uh, culture is uh, immediately involved in that. We can remember the Bible of Gutenberg, is one of the mm -hmm. first books printed is that. But sermons are immediately best-seller in print, they sell very well, and so my project looked specifically at the bestseller in the early printed markets, so between uh, 1470 and before the Reformation, so which were the books that were most printed, because that is a bit strange. 
We know they existed, but up to now they have been very little studied. So there is uh, a lot of space to do research on sources that are not difficult to find, but you need to have the right skill to interpret and then to construct uh, a discourse to valorize them somehow. Um, one thing I was struck by in, in that very interesting response was, that, you know, sort of the difference between audiences. Because if I recall your earlier answers, we you you were speaking about an audience that received the sermons orally, and that was their experience of this mode of communication. But there was also a separate audience, if I understand, for this very same text in written form or yeah. in printed form. Um, how did authors of these sermons, how did they cater to what must have been two very different audiences? How did they, how did they split yeah. the difference, so to speak? And to be, to be honest, there were multiple audiences mm -hmm. because, of course, uh, uh, this is also interesting. You can have the same preacher that preach uh, to a mixed audience in a public square, so with people of different social strata in the town, but then you can have sources about him preaching to nuns in a convent. And you can see that not only the contents are different, but also the style. Uh, basically, in the public square, you, especially in Italy, they were quite histrionic sometimes. They need to catch the attention, to keep the attention of a large audience, while you can imagine that with with a group of nuns in the convent, uh, it's a group that has a, should have, at least in theory, higher motivation for a spiritual life. So you perhaps can uh, uh, go for a more um, um, interiorized message or immediately that... Uh, mediate a certain different kind of ideas. And how did those differences find expression in the printed or written text? The difference that is visible in print is uh, mainly the linguistic difference that can be, we start to have uh, already in the late 50th century, some author that published in the vernacular saying, well, I know that between my readers, there are not only the other professionals, because let's say that Lend sermons in Latin often are for other professional of religious communication, so that we are used to read a sermon, often also to go through abbreviations, so we're professional. Instead, it grew also the an audience of lay people that was interested in keeping somehow the experience, the, 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 the performance of a great preacher to bring it at home or in a confraternity. So they start to take notes or to ask and bother the preacher, please write it down also in the vernacular, something for us. And so it starts a production, first in manuscript, then also in print at a certain point, of vernacular texts that stem from the sermon or from a preaching event, but were tuned also for the laity, so in the vernacular. And when we say vernacular, also for a certain level of the clergy that was not the learned part, so that was much more familiar with the vernacular than with the sophisticated Latin of the university. So they were perhaps priests that, okay, I have enough Latin for my mass to read the gospel, more or less to understand that. But if you give me a book in Latin, heavily annotated with theology, it's a bit tough. Instead, the text of, uh, in the vernacular can be more direct. So we have differentiated audience in that. That is something that can be traced in these kind of sources. 
Thank you, Pietro, for that fascinating introduction to your topic. Um, we were talking a little bit before about the theatricality and the histrionics of um, certain elements of the sermons as they were performed before their audiences as itinerant preachers went round and round. Um, one thing I was struck by were the similarities with the you know, similar type of preaching movements um, at other periods of history. One can think of, for example, the Puritans uh, in uh, 16th, 17th century England, or more recently, you know, sort of the itinerant uh, evangelical preachers that uh, went through the American Midwest um, uh, during the early, late 19th and early 20th century. Have you considered these comparisons? And do you have any observations in that regard? Yes. Um, uh, of course, when we speak about uh, preaching, first we have to acknowledge that it's not only a Christian phenomenon, so would open also the space for a comparison between different religions and on that, I'm just aware that in the field of uh, medieval sermon studies, there is an increasing uh, comparison between uh, Christian preaching with the difference uh, of the different Christian tradition, Jewish preaching and Muslim preaching. And so this is a fruitful comparison. And then across history, if we just pick up with uh, Christian tradition, first we have to remember that in the gospel, Jesus is presented mainly as a preacher at the beginning. So he go around and teach to the people and apparently quite successful, at least according to the gospel. And, um, and then from there, it continued this tradition up to today. So it's a phenomenon that really is largely present in uh, the let's say, Western culture or European culture, as we prefer to call it. And then, of course, that from Europe was exported abroad Christian preaching. So there would be all the interesting issue of the missionary preaching. And that is closer to my field because, of course, when I'm dealing with late Middle Ages, so 15th century, early 16th century, is then also at the time when they started to found new mission in the new world. So... I never studied directly what was going on in the early 60th century in today Mexico, but they were the preacher trained on my texts that then had to face a new reality, and they arrived there with the culture that I can see in my texts. And then, of course, they have to readapt quite a lot. But, for instance, a couple of years ago, there was a conference in Florida about uh, medieval preaching and the new worlds, and there there were fascinating talk about, uh, for instance, pieces of sermons that were translated in the language of native people there in the 16th century to be short story to teach um, moral values or something like that. So this transmission or transformation of texts. And uh, for what concerns theatricality, that is a very interesting point because there is a sort of a permanent tension between saying, well, of course, preaching is a serious discourse. So you speak, you comment about the word of God, you speak for God somehow. The preacher claimed to speak in the name of God, but then there is the need to keep the attention of the people. So the alliance with the uh, techniques uh, that uh, are from the theater are very tempting for preachers. And, uh, for instance, there were interesting comments uh, in the, if I remember correctly, 30th, 40th century of some preacher in Germany that were commenting not positively about the habit of Italian preacher that uh, were very, very histrionic. So they moved a lot. 
they used a lot of gesture, they were not quite on the pulpit. And that was a way to catch the attention of people. So far, you know, we have been discussing these preachers in terms of their nationality or the order to which they belong. But were there individuals of note in this regard? Do we have any instances of, you know, sort of uh, late medieval celebrity preachers or, you know, sort of stars, so to speak, of this genre? Yeah. Um, so, yes, we have a very famous uh, preacher in the late Middle Ages that were really like rock star today. So they, when they arrived, they were invited months or years in advance. They, a city would pay to have them and they arrived with the group that were supporting them. And the most famous names are Vincent Ferrer, Bernardino da Siena, John of Capistran, and, this, and other. And about this preacher, we know quite a lot, because being a very important people, we have news in the chronicles. It's like if a Nobel Prize arrives in a city, you have in the newspaper information about them. Or if George Clooney arrives in a city, you are sure that you know where it stays, what is his dinner and everything he does. So about this information, we have quite a lot. And it's interesting that the traces of these famous preachers are still visible in our cities. Here in Budapest, we have a statue of John of Capistrano or in Florence of Savonarola and other like that. My effort is instead to trace those that were not so famous, but were the everyday preachers. So again, if we use the compare with Nobel Prize, we know that at university sometimes a Nobel Prize arrives and give a speech. Here at CU we had recently you know, a Nobel Prize. And it's a lecture, yes, but is that the average lecture at the university? Yes and no. There are similarities, but also big differences. And my project in studying this Lenten sermon collection that were used by the majority of preachers is a way to arrive to understand better what was the average discourse, which were the, the contents of the everyday preaching. Of course, on many things were not different from that of the stars. There are linkages. But uh, on other things, I guess it's fascinating to try to, to enlarge the spectrum so that we stop only to know something about the big star and we have more an idea of the what was at the end a growing professional social group, expert of communication of the time. So try to understand how they prepare themselves, which were their favorite uh, working tools, the books they used, and so more or less how they structure their communication to a general audience in everyday occasion, not only in the uh, unique events that we have from other sources. Now, given that they would have enjoyed substantial celebrity, fame, and repute, as you describe, um, would they not perhaps have been tempted to include in their sermons topics that were not perhaps exclusively religious? And I consider in this regard, you know, in their audience, there might have been princes or nobles or those of influence and the like. Uh, could they really resist, resist the temptation uh, to be able to include other messages, political, philosophical, yeah. and the like, um, that might not be, strictly speaking, construed as religious? On that, I guess, first of all, we have to keep in mind that in the medieval society, the division between religion, politi politics, uh, 
and other level of society was not like today. So a religious discourse was always also political and was uh, dealing with a broader aspect of uh, the society and power and uh, relationship uh, in society. And um, what is interesting, I think, uh, beside that, is that the preacher was, of course, the main actor of the preaching event, but not the only actor. So there was ongoing a sort of never-ending negotiation, both with the political power that were in that city or in that context. Uh, You can force your discourse up to a certain measure, otherwise you have to face consequences that can be dangerous. And we can give some example if you want. But also then a negotiation with the audience. So they have to match the expectation we would say today the horizon of expectation of the audience. So to be perceived as a a preacher that says something relevant, something that is uh, necessary, something that is important to listen. And so this, this also is important for us to keep in mind that when we speak of the preacher and the audience, there is not an active protagonist and a passive recipient, but was really a a communication that involved an agency also of the audience. And that is visible, for instance, in the emerging of certain topics in the late Middle Ages that were not so at the forefront uh, before. And that were exactly the results between uh, what the preacher considered important to discuss, but also what were becoming important issues in society. Okay, thank you for that. Um, I'm really curious about this celebritization of the orators and their relationship with their audience. Um, did their representation take other forms? How, for example, was their arrival announced in advance? You know, how did that happen? Were there visual representations, for example, that these preachers uh, had in order to document their presence or that those in the town? Uh, would document the presence of the preacher. We have uh, information for these celebrities that are really interesting and also are perhaps the most uh, uh, juicy part of these stories because you have uh, chronicles that tell that the preacher arrives into town and there is so much a big crowd waiting for him and everybody wants to touch him and sometimes even they were cutting pieces of his dress while he was passing and he arrived like half naked to the convent and this sort of... Uh, Entirely uh, accidental, I'm sure. Yeah, no, no, but just to have... So some of this preacher was perceived as living saint. Mm. The point is how they build this celebrity is more difficult because uh, it's like there was a career of the ideal preacher in which he started to preach in little uh, towns just to... was tested, sent to preach in... And, of course, on those uh, early years of the career, usually we have very little information. And when we have, we have about those preachers that then became or tried to become saint after. And so it's all filtered to the lens of uh, a geography. So how much can we rely on those issues? So, And then we have an episode in which oh, already when they were uh, teenagers, they were able to entertain large crowds. There were miracles uh, able to preach and repeat, and that is difficult to to trust completely. But there was surely this phenomenon of uh, the creation of a aura of sanctity, so a public fame, 
And there is also where, of, of course, on one end, there was the propaganda of the religious order. So other friars start to say, oh, this is an important friar. But also the, 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 the reception of the people. So why the crowd love more one preacher of the other? That is difficult to say. But we know that some preachers were able to capture the attention of the of larger crowds, perhaps for their ability to speak, to entertain, also to, to move people both to tear when necessary or to laugh, so to, to really produce the best show in town. No. Uh, we have to remember that there was no cinema, no radio, no television. So, well, this is was also theatricality, right? A theatricality also employed in the use of the preacher's own image building. And I think, you know, this might be a, a good point at which to transition to another one of your your scholarly interests, which is uh, the theater um, and and uh, religious theater of the period in particular. Um, I see that there's a you know sort of now that there's a strong link between the two aspects. Could you tell us a little bit about this aspect? of your research. Yes, this aspect of the research on uh, religious theater was also to try to answer one issue that we touched before, that was, of course, the preacher preach, but what was uh, received by the people. So Mm -hmm. how the lay people digested and appropriated the message. And so I started to study in a project, I was studying the use of a parable, that of Lazarus and the rich man, that touched several social issues in 50th century Italy mainly. And so I had the sermons produced by preachers, but then I realized that, well, we have also one piece of theater written by probably, we don't know it's anonymous, but probably by a lay author in uh, around uh, 1417 Florence, to be performed by unprofessional lay actors in the context of a confraternity. So there is possible to see the other side of the, 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 the communication system. So in that case, we have the laity at the forefront. So they recreated the religious discourse. There was a, the possibility in the 50th century to have a protagonist of the laity in the religious culture, much more than in the 6th century. So the 50th century, at least in Italy, is a period, as I said, of experimentation and also to a certain degree of freedom. So there is not a concern to say it's not a theologian, but is dealing with a biblical story. At least it's not a, a main issue. And so I started to discover this type of religious theater. That is quite interesting because it was a theater developed in confraternities was set for boys, that means what we say today, teenagers, so between 12 and 22, 25 years old, as a practice to, as an educational practice, both on religious contents, but as we were saying before, also on social issues. So the idea was a type of theater, as been said by scholars, to build the perfect Christian citizen. And so able to then the stage serve also to mediate situations. So I can present a ideological view of society. So these are the problems. These are the solutions you encounter on the stage. That is a safe space where we can deal with these issues. And in the project, then you internalize certain value. And hopefully when you were old, you will uh, behave accordingly, or at least knowing certain things. Then following the rules is always difficult, but at least the effort was there. So a new educational effort. 
So you can really see a common theme throughout your research about, you know, sort of communication theory in regard to religious communications during, you know, the, this period, whether by the vis traveling preachers or by the lay communities and confraternities. Yeah, in one sentence, I used to say that what for me is interesting or what is at the center of my research is uh, the role of religious communication in society. On one end, how this religious communication reflected this, the society of the time and how then was one of the instruments to shape that society. So what was the impact of this communication on society? Because of course, both sermons or religious theater, they look at the society of the time, they also describe the society of the time, but always with an ideological point of view and an agency. So I want to describe a certain phenomenon to obtain an effect, so to transform something or to push my audience to do something. And so we have always to be careful about this uh, description of society and project on society that are present in these kind of sources. And so also the uh, my act or subtitle of the my main project is exactly Lenten Sermon Bestsellers, as I said, or Sermon Collection, shaping society mm -hmm. in the late Middle Ages. So really, what was the role of this type of communication in creating, a, as been said by a very important scholar that I would like to mention in this chat about medieval sermon is uh, David Davre. He said that these type of sources are a social force. So we have to see them as a discourse that create a force on society and that try to obtain an effect. So It's a nice way of avoid, avoiding the problem of many structuralist analysis of keeping agency in the forefront, and that's what's attractive about this approach. Yeah, of course, you then need to, when you analyze the sources, you can use different approaches. Mm -hmm. I, I, I try to keep the, the idea that we have taxes, written taxes, but we need to put them back in the communicative event within a society, and of course, one approach that can be used is uh, more a discourse analysis approach also, because of when I said there is an ideological point of view, an agency, well, it's also a relationship of power. So, of course, the preacher that is allowed to speak in public can dictate certain norms, can try to impose certain discourse. So it's also about, I think, production and reproduction of discursive power. And so also a bit less, uh, let's say, up to now, we kept a very light tone, but it's also a discourse about discrimination, who is accepted, who is not, who can be considered a citizen, who is excluded. So we see also this dynamic of power really present in communication in the past, but as is today. So there is also where interesting bridges are possible to say, well, of course, these events in the past uh, can relate to some, something that is happening also today in different forms, with different media, with different actors. Well, that's absolutely fascinating, both substantively and methodologically. I think what you just mentioned offers many prospects for the future. And that brings us to, you know, sort of the obvious question, what's next for you? And how do you bring this research forward? In reality, this year that I spent here at uh, CU, at the Institute for Advanced Studies, was the kickoff of a new project. This mm -hmm. project about Lenten Sermon Collections, because I encountered some of these sources that in previous projects but were not at the center of my research. And I realized that they really need to be approached in a systematic way, understanding them not as a random collection of sermons, but really as a complex tool to organize and convey a complex discourse. 
And so I started this uh, reflection about, on one end, which were the main uh, successful uh, of these texts in print, and then the variety of strategy that could be used to engage an audience. So how you construct this complex discourse for so many days. And what I did this year was a first um, exploration. Luckily, I received funding also for other two years in another university, thanks to another fellowship. And there I will start building also a database where to store this type of material, also to then allow other scholars to find the material. Because we briefly mentioned before that, of course, this uh, type of discourse in preaching was about religious issues, but also many other social issues. We mentioned education, marriage, sexuality, economical issues, politics. And of course, having access to this kind of information would be quite useful for other scholars. And I realized that because some colleagues, knowing that I'm working on sermons, they asked me, oh, is there something about, I don't know, prostitution? Is there about something other things? And of course there is, but it's not easy to remember where. So my project is to build this uh, sort of database and to arrive to somehow to construct an atlas of European Lenten preaching. So to understand which were the options, why were different, if possible, which were the main actors if print changed that, and so to recover what I define a sort of lost continent or forgotten continent of what was the public communication of the time that is uh, forgotten not because it's not visible. Scholars know that it's there, but we still need to have uh, some hermeneutical tool to appreciate that really in, in all its uh, importance. Well, that sounds like an absolutely promising and very useful line of research to follow. And uh, we very much look forward to having you back on Past Perfect as the project develops. And uh, hopefully you come back to CEU. Any last words from you, Pietro, about any question that I should have asked that I didn't ask? No, uh, thank you for this uh, chat. I think that, uh, well, if the listeners arrive till this point, is good enough. And also a preacher should know when to stop. And uh, just this episode, there was a preacher in Strasbourg that has this deal with his audience. He was preaching with a sunglass of about one hour. He promised, when it finished, I stop. And he was really stopping in mid of a sentence when it was finishing. Say, well, I start again tomorrow. He stayed there for 32 years. So probably was quite well accepted by the other that he has this strict rule to end what was the time. Well, I hope I finish my PhD thesis before 32 years and move on from CEO. And with that, we bring to a close another episode of Past Perfect with our special guest today, Pietro Del Corno, a junior core fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies at CEU. Until next time, it's Past Perfect. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>